Hello everybody, we are a band from Slovakia called Cico Band and Rene Rendi. And now you're listening to the podcast Katsumoto with Peter Sikoro and Jeff Lobmanov. Hey everybody, how we doing? Welcome to episode three of Katsumoto Conversations. Thank you to the Tito Band once again for that amazing introduction. For me, Jeff Lobman, how we doing, Peter? I'm doing fantastic, Big Poppy. How are you? I'm doing all right, brother. Doing all right. So uh, season's starting up. Season's starting up. And uh, I know I've been talking to you about, uh, you know, getting you guys going. And uh, I think we're going to be linking up in Boston this weekend, which is pretty exciting. Get to see you finally face-to-face for a long time no see. Yes, definitely. You know, it's been a summer of hard training for everyone. And uh, now here we go, you know, the Boston breakout where basically everybody on the East Coast is going. And, uh, you know, let's see, uh, you know, how the teams are looking in the beginning of the season. And, you know, let's get the hockey season rolling. Yeah, yeah, we had uh, we had our first games with the with the Nordiques program this past week up in Boston. And I'm heading back up again tomorrow morning. So uh, back on the East Coast, as always as always but uh going into the season not only as a coach but as a parent which is going to be the topic of discussion today for everybody uh what are the expectations as per your team your organization we're going to hit it all today uh but let's hear it from you I'd, i'd like to hear what you say not only as a coach but as a parent for your son uh what are your expectations coming into the season uh, before I get to that, I just uh, really have a good conversation with one of the uh, listeners who listened to our show. Very successful guy. Uh, he is, has a son. He's 15 years old. He plays hockey. And, uh, you know, he came up to me and he goes, hey, Peter, uh, what a great show. This and that. Uh, you know, for me as a parent, just like you said, can you just like tell me my son in this age and what I should really expect from him in the season? How should I be on him? How much should I let the coaches do their job and me in the fear or to talk to him? And uh, there's definitely uh, something we uh, really have to cover. Uh, then the other thing he said uh, was about how is the transition? Just talk about the transition between, let's say, from a score to PV hockey, from PV to Banham and from Banham to midget hockey where you know his son is actually going right now so you know there is something definitely we have to cover and you know to answer a question you know the expectations for the teams right now when we get to the u15 u16 i think you know it's way more about uh kind of learning the kids you know how to win a game how to really earn their spots in the lineup about the work ethic about you know all those things they're really gonna see at the big hockey and uh, it's definitely a way different approach to the season than when you have a squirt. You know, when you have a squirt, it's all about fun, try to develop. It's all about, uh, you know, what is he missing skating-wise, skill-wise? Does he need work on that? You know, it's all making sure you come into the ring happy and coming out of the ring happy and this and that. When you get to midget hockey, it's a little different now. You know, yeah, it's sure. uh, definitely a little different. And... Um, I can tell you just from the experience, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, on the ice and watching the U15 team here and, you know, watching the U16, you know, it's definitely way different approach and uh, you coming into the big hockey now. 
and uh, you know definitely the expectation how you prepare yourself for every practice let's not even talk about games right now just the way you come to the rink you know how you show the uh, coaches every day how you work how you listening during practices these coaches they looking at all of this stuff and uh, you know I don't want to really talk about exactly what's happening here, but in general, even though it's happening here, you know, you can have a big expectation. You coming out of the U14 being a big star and this and that, and then you all of a sudden come to the U15 and you don't work as hard in practice. You don't come in, you know, with the attitude that the coaches are expecting. And trust me, no one is waiting here for you. No one is waiting here. And unless you put the work in, you come in every day, you listen to the details now, what the coaches want you. If the coaches want you in the practice just to get a little bit lower for the third time, you don't do it. You know, there is no like smiling at you. Oh, can you please do it? This is the time to do it. And this is the very big uh, transition for a lot of the kids, as I can see it right now in the last couple of weeks. And uh, definitely, uh, you know, some of them are going to have a little more harder time. Some of them, they're used to it and they know what to do. But end of the day, we are here to help you to get where you want to get. But you have to bring what you need to bring. Yeah, 100%. And, uh, you know, I spoke to some of the parents on my team and even some of the people in the organization. And, you know, we did not uh, we did not have a winning record these past few games uh, with the Nordiques. We did not. Um, but I sent out a message before we even went up there. And I said that the first few games of the season are never a true indication of how the season will go. It's to see a baseline. And I thought I saw a great baseline with our group, uh, a lot of grit, uh, good compete levels. Uh, obviously it's the beginning of the season. There's a ton to work on. You can't go in there and expect, expect, like expect perfection. You know, we only practice about five, five and a half hours before we played our first games together. So, I thought that from what I saw, uh, it's a good baseline, solid baseline. Uh, but you also get to see who put the work in over the summer, right? So you get to see who was, you know, who comes in in shape, uh, who comes in mentally prepared for the games, as you said, who's coming in mentally prepared uh, for practice and is ready to go and isn't taking 20 minutes or so to get started. Uh, who's taking things like video sessions seriously. So I, I think it's a, a good thing to talk about is expectations at certain levels. But I also want to talk about today expectations of, of, that parents have of organizations, not only just of players and coaches, but of the organization as a whole. Does the organization stand by what they say they're going to deliver with? You know, um, as the players get older, I think that parents should be taking more and more of a step back from, you know, everyday communication with coaches. Uh, I, I think that it's becoming more and more prevalent uh, nowadays more than ever. Uh, I certainly don't remember, especially my parents, ever hounding coaches uh, about things like playing time and lines and you know strategy and such like that. I think that uh, it's a very odd phenomena that just because some parents, you know, they think they pay their bill that they can dictate strategy and, and, and line combinations and all sorts of things with coaches. Uh, I, I don't see any coaches going into the parent on the team's job and telling them how to do their job, yet they feel like they can open the door at any time and tell us what to do. Um, this is our jobs. This is what we do. And unless there is a serious concern, which has been brought up to the coach uh, through, you know, through the proper channels, uh, I think that a lot of parents, especially at the U15, U16, U18, U20 levels, really need to take a step back and 
let their player handle problems. These players are turning into adults now. If there is an issue, the, the player always has an avenue to go talk to the coach first. Um, but to kind of digress back to what players should expect, I think that players should just expect progress for themselves. Uh, you shouldn't be really competing against anybody else. You should be competing against yourself. And am I going to continue on the progression level that I had last year? Am I going to do what it takes to continue to make it to the next level? I think that uh, there there is a percentage of players that feels like they expect to continue going up because maybe they were good one year or maybe they were good two years and they take their, their foot off the pedal. They stop doing the things that made them successful and they start to coast. I mean, we've talked about it before. How many guys are amazing players at the squirt and peewee, maybe even the bantam level, and then by midgets, they disappear. By juniors, they've already quit because they're not making teams anymore. And while all these other guys are working their asses off and continuing to compete and put in the work and, and train on and off the ice, that these guys feel like because they were talented players in their youth days that they can just coast to the, you know, coast to the finish line. So expectations uh, are definitely different uh, at each level, for sure. I completely agree with you that at the younger ages, you're building passion, you're building the love. Are they smiling coming in and out? That's extremely important. Um, but as you get older, you should not expect to love every single day. It's impossible, but it's part of the job. And you're going to have to fight through those days because in the end run, what you're looking for is that successful finish line. Not necessarily the most enjoyable, lovable journey, but you want an outcome. And if you want that outcome, you have to work for that outcome. And a lot of times that work is stressful and it's hard, but you have to do it. It is a must. So especially with these guys that, you know, we're, we're coaching the U16s and U18s here. Uh, a lot of them have talked to me about how different it is from, you know, where they came from last year, uh, different mindsets, different ways of doing things, especially a lot of them are now living away from home for the first time. They've never done that before. So now it's self-sufficiency as well, being able to handle their schoolwork as well as their, you know, athletics. Um, you have to be able to roll with these things and, you know, adapt. So I find it to be uh, a very interesting topic, especially to talk to parents about, uh, about the expectations for their player at each level. So I think that over the course of this episode, as we're talking, uh, we should be making sure to make a point to not only just talk about the players, but what parents should expect as well. Yeah, no, you said a lot of great things. Uh, I can tell you right now when I you know, look down the ice or when I'm on the ice with the kids, I can tell you right away who put the work in and who didn't. And for those who didn't, it's going to take you quite a bit of grind to get where you need to be. And hopefully that's going to be their learning experience where they're going to know for the following year coming to the U16 or the U18 that they have to put the work in. And it's perfectly said where right now the parents, there are there should be a way. There should be a way. They should just bring their kids in, drop them off, go watch the practice and let them handle all the problems they might have by themselves. I think uh, the coaches are at the U15, U16, U18 in such a good level. There is no bad coaches now. They are in such a good level where they know how to deal with the kids. They know how to deal with this age group, kind of, you know, they go through a lot of, just like you said, maybe they're moving out of the city, go into different town. Maybe they, you know, first time without a family. So these, these guys, these coaches, they know how 
to deal with that stuff. And uh, as I know for our club, you know, there is no dealing with the parents directly. Coaches dealing with the boys. You know, if the boys have a problem, directly come into the coaches. And I think this is the way where uh, definitely it has to be done. And trust me, at this level, the parents will do no good to the kids if they're gonna get on the coaches about this, you know, that that problem. I think at this level, definitely just stay away. Let the coaches do their job. Trust me, these coaches are here to help you. They're not here to put your son on third line because he's supposed to be on first line. If your son's supposed to be at the U15, U16 on first line, he's gonna play first line if, if he's that good. It's very that simple. So, uh, you know, the other thing is don't, just like you said, the first few games, don't really look into it where your son is playing, what's going on. You know, as the coaches, most of the teams, they have probably five, six, seven, sometimes the whole team is and these coaches have to see, you know, who who works with who, what kind of line combination. This guy cannot play with that guy, but this guy was very good with that guy. And, you know, there's going to be some juggling in, in the lineup. Doesn't mean anything, really. The first few games, actually first probably two to five weeks doesn't mean anything. You know, we just have to, as a coaching staff, we just have to see, you know, how you fit in the style of play we want to play, how you fit in with the team, how you fit in with certain line mates. And uh, definitely, you know, just really quite straight up, quite simple. Drop your son, go get yourself a coffee and go enjoy and watch your son play hockey. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And this ties into what we've talked about before, where with the way that we do things out here uh, with chemistry and, and how late we start in relativity to Europe, and that's where I'd say there's, there's pros and cons, right? You know, the, the cons of how they run things in Europe is you can't train with any other coaches or, or anybody else. You have to stick with the team. But at the same time, they start training as a team in July for a season that starts at the end of August or the beginning of September. So by the time the season starts, they've already had a month and a half or two months together. And the coach has figured out which lines are going to play and who's going to be with who. And all the chemistry is, is sorted. Uh, whereas here, like I said, we had about five, five and a half hours be between moving into our billet homes and our first games so kind of an interesting dynamic and you know i think that the, the boys took it really well we focused a lot on team building uh, on getting these guys to know each other on and off the ice uh, i thought that was extremely important to start the season that way uh, instead of doing the more monotonous things just getting these guys comfortable being around each other because with a team like ours, which is a brand new expansion program, nobody played with each other. Everybody's new. So the first thing you have to do is have guys that are comfortable with each other and that like each other and start building on that. Then we can start getting into all the other things. So I, I find it important for parents to understand what you said before, that the first two to five weeks are not a clear indication of how this season is going. And uh, as one of my friends likes to put it, uh, bubbles rise to the top. And if your player is a first line player, he is going to be, or she is going to be a first line player. That is how this is going to go. But there are also variables to that. Your son or daughter could be an amazingly skilled player, but a cancer in the locker room or a cancer on the bench with terrible body language that talks back or this, that, and the other thing, whatever those variables, variables may be. And then that is going to knock them down the lineup. So sometimes it's not just, you know, the skill level. It's also all the other things that your player brings to the table. Are they a good team player? You know what I mean? Are they, are they coachable? Are they personable? 
And those variables are extremely important. But there are also things that are off the ice that are out of a player's control. And your player can be an amazing player. But I hate to break it to some of these parents. If you are a pain in the ass, especially at the youth level, nobody is going to want to deal with you. And sometimes it doesn't matter how skilled your player may be. If nobody wants to deal with you as a human being, as a parent, you are going to limit the opportunities for your player. I guarantee it in one way or another. Uh, I've seen it dozens of times uh, where organizations have no problem with the kid whatsoever, but they cannot stand the parents. And they say, I'm sorry, we do not want to deal with you. Good luck elsewhere. You're not welcome here. And that's, uh, that's a terrible thing to fall down on the player. Uh, it's completely out of the player's control. They could be amazing kids. Most of the time, they are amazing kids, truly. But you have parents that are so overbearing onto their children or onto the organization or especially onto the coaches. I mean, a lot of these coaches, as you said, are extremely skilled at what they do. They've been dealing with kids and, and, and dealing with hockey for a long time or in the industry for a long time. But let's face it, youth hockey does not pay the bills. To be a coach in youth hockey as a youth hockey coach, uh, you are not making millions of dollars. So at some point, a lot of these coaches, they just go, I don't want to deal with this crap anymore. I don't need to deal with the overbearing parent calling me at 1130 at night because uh, little Johnny got pulled off the power play on Saturday. I don't need this in my life. I have my own kids or my own problems and my own business or whatever it is. And eventually they're going to say, I don't need this. So before, like as parents, before you start, start bombarding coaches about what could be a very minor problem and you're, and you're making a, you know, a mountain out of an anthill, you know, I don't think that's the saying, but we're going to go with it anyways. Before you start making this huge problem over something that could be so minimal, why don't you take a step back, take a breath and think about how you can approach this problem in a positive manner where you can both come out of this in a successful way. But when you start bombarding these coaches and going bananas on them, you are going to turn what could be an amazing coach and an amazing mentor to your player away from wanting to do this. And I've seen that happen as well. Definitely, Jeff. Uh, I think most importantly, everybody always look at first as the coach. My advice is first, check out your son or daughter. So there is a reason if you feel he's that good and he got pulled out of that power play, there is a reason. So why don't you as a parent sit, sit your player at home and asking question, are you working hard enough? Are you doing what the coach tells you to do? Are you good in the locker room? Are you a good teammate? Are you supporting? Are you blocking shots? Are you doing this? Are you, so there is there there is a reason. So instead of come at the coach right away, why this happened? Why don't you try and figure it out at home with your son? And I tell you, ninety nine point nine percent of the time is the player at home who's the reason why he got up that power play. So you know, just kind of take a deep breath. You know, it's uh, the first line you said, Jeff. If you belong on that top line and you're doing the right stuff, you will be there. Right. And 
it is that's the way it is so definitely you know instead of go harass the coaches right away take a look at your player at home try to figure out what's going on first and the best way to get on that power play or that first line is to help your player at home try to put him on the right track it's not gonna happen right away but if he's on the right track and he belongs there he will get there yeah i mean uh so a few years back when i was coaching uh 12 double a team that won the state championship the kaha no the north carolina state championship it wasn't the kaha tournament so we had some players on that team that put up over 100 points or well near 100 points and then we had some players that were just above the double digit line and it seemed to be the players that were just above the double digit line their parents seemed to be the ones that were constantly complaining about ice time now we had three lines of players and i like to roll everybody because especially at the peewee level these kids should be playing as much as possible to develop when you were complaining that your son who has 12 points is not on the power play compared to a kid who has 80 90 100 points in a season you have to take a real good look without your parent glasses on about what your son or daughter is is doing and not doing and you can't just say, oh, you know, my son or daughter, they work so hard and they do this and they do that. And it's like, okay, no, they're not. And you cannot keep them on the same plane. And that's not a knock on your son or daughter necessarily. It could be, but it's not necessarily a knock on your son or daughter. It is telling you the truth. And at some point, people need to tell the truth. Uh, I think it's at all points people need to tell the truth. You cannot just allow kids to do whatever they want with no consequences. And in, in this game, the consequence is a lack of ice time. So is your son or daughter showing up to the extra skill session that your organization provides, like we did? Is your son or daughter showing up to the video sessions? And when they're there, are they actually mentally present? Are they making changes to their games like some of these other players are doing? And as parents, also, what are you supplementing with this at home? How can you help this at home if you see that your son or daughter is not getting the ice time that you think they may deserve? Are you know, there's tons of tools now to watch the games. There is Live Barn, there is Hockey TV, you know, there's a bunch of different avenues to go over this with. Are you going home and watching this after the game is live and seeing, wow? My son or daughter is really out there doing, you know, public skate, just left turns all day. They're not touching the puck. They're not working hard. They're not getting open. They're not finding the soft areas of the ice. They're not doing a lot of the things that all these other kids are doing. Hmm. Maybe the coach is onto something, but instead, like you say, it, it always happens to be the, the coach's fault. First, the coach hates my son. The coach hates my daughter. The coach uh, is an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, you know, wh whatever your excuse may be, there has to be a level of accountability. And we're seeing more and more <clears throat> with players that don't hold themselves accountable because it's never their fault at home. It's never their fault. It's always someone else's fault, whether it's in hockey or it's in school. It, it just seems to be somebody else's fault consistently. And I'm sorry if this is a hard truth for many of you to swallow, but this is the truth. The truth is 
we need to hold kids more accountable for their actions. Because when they grow up into adults, you cannot just snap your fingers and expect them to be held accountable, like hold themselves accountable for their actions. They have to be taught this. So between schooling, sport, and parenting at home, that should be plenty of time for life lessons growing up for these kids to hold themselves accountable. If you are not performing, you will not be rewarded. It's as simple as that, in my opinion. No, 100%, Jeff. And as the pyramid goes up, you know, you're going to see that uh, the kids that hold themselves accountable, they're going to be playing at the pyramid up. And and uh, there is no more excuses now. When you get to the level, the U15, U16, the top uh, level in the United States, you know, the players play. It's really that simple. And you can have excuses growing up. You can do this, my coaches and that. You know, the coaches at the U15, U16, they don't really care what you did before. You have to come in now and play and show it day after day in practice and games and this and that. And and uh, just like you said, uh, uh, these kids, they actually, the parents are doing wrong to them because when they're going to hit the U15, U16 coach, he's not going to put up with that stuff. And uh, this really could mean that the player would be done. Yeah. I mean, try doing that at the junior level. Wait. Forget yeah, forget it. <laughs> forget it. Forget it. Forget it. Your kid will be on the next bus out with his stuff in a garbage bag. You know, it's and I don't see that as a problem at all. You at the by the time your son is at the junior level, he's an adult. And, you know, teams that I played for, the junior team that I coached for, we had player and coach meetings all the time. You know, the junior team that I coached for, we had player meetings every Tuesday with a report card. You'd fill out your own report card. We would go over it. And then we would talk about how we saw differences in what you wrote down or how you felt. And it would be an open forum. And this was not a just the coach talking to the player. This was an opportunity every single week for the player to voice their questions, comments, concerns, whatever it may be, with no repercussion. This was an open forum. And uh, I thought that was a great thing. I thought that was a great thing because it also teaches these young men at the junior level to air out their problems and deal with it. You have to face your problem head on. Okay, coach, I've been on the third or fourth line for a month now. I don't see myself progressing. What are the things that you see that I'm doing wrong or not doing enough of that's holding me back or, or, or making me hit the ceiling? Okay, we think that you need to do this, this, and this. If you can consistently start doing this, this, and this more, or doing this, this, and this less, whatever it may be, you will find that you will be progressing up the depth chart. Okay, thank you very much. Now, whether the player takes that and runs with it, or it goes in one ear and out the other, that's on the player. That's not on us anymore. If we are given a question, propose a question, and we give a clear-cut answer, and we give clear expectations, if those expectations are not met, do not expect progress. It's as simple as that. Yes. Yes, 100%, Jeff. It is very hard, you know. It is, on one hand, and I've seen at the kids, on one hand, it's very hard because since some of the kids are playing at four, five, six, since that age, these kids are being told something at home. They were kind of living behind that excuse is somebody else's fault. And for them, they kind of believe this is the way it is. So sometimes when I look at these kids, it's, uh, it's for me, it's like, is it really his fault? 
or you know can i kind of help him to change it and uh you know it's uh when you have a caring coach he's gonna try and change you and and he's gonna try to help you out and he's gonna really try to kind of you know to set you up for the following year you know and is he really is gonna try to just uh, not to change you completely but show you the way it is you know but if you come like that to the coach who basically doesn't give a shit and and i'm i'm here to win you come on that bus if you don't follow what we do in here get off that bus then you are in trouble and you have to look for uh, for other place to play yeah. but uh, you know, definitely this is a topic we can really keep talking about it, but uh, I think you made some great, great points. I think uh, a lot of the parents can get a lot of good information from what we just told them and and definitely just to sum it up and to end it up uh, at this level, you have to take care of your stuff. You have to be uh, responsible for everything you're doing. There is no one, the parents should not be behind you. The parents should be behind you to tell you great job after the game and drive it to the rink and be there, support you emotionally. And, you know, if you a goalie and you got five goals scored on, just kind of to be there for you. And, but uh, the players really should be responsible for that stuff right now. And they have to deal with it. They should deal with the coaches one-on-one, not the parents. And uh, all the communication really should be between the coaches and the player and not between the coaches and the parents. Yeah, and just to, just to finish up on this topic before we start moving on to uh, the rest of the agenda for the day, so to speak, my mother is an amazing woman, so I don't want this to be taken out of context. She was an amazing athlete when she was uh, in her younger years, but my mother always told me constantly, you are not special. Stop acting like you're special. You have to become special. You have to do things that make you special. Okay, there's a thousand of you out there. If you just stay the way you are, if you just go through the motions and do things, there's a there's a thousand of you. But what's going to be the difference maker between you and them that's going to make you move up? What are the things that you do that they don't do? And, you know, you hear this a lot with the, you know, the Michael Jordan videos and the Kobe Bryant videos and all these things that these kids see on the internet and TikTok and, you know, Instagram all the time. They see these motivational things of Kobe Bryant talking about how hard he worked and how people hated him. And they thought he was, you know, an asshole because of the things he said when he held other people accountable at the, at the highest level that he played at. But, you know, at a really young age, that made a lot of sense to me. And, you know, it's what is the difference maker when there is 15 or 16 spots available and there are 40 kids trying out, what is the difference between you and them? Or even at the junior level and the pro level, when there's 22, 25 people on a roster and, you know, all the other guys that want to make that team, what is going to be the difference maker? regardless, especially at the older levels, whether you're a returning player or not to an organization, you could be a great player, but you're a cancer in the locker room all year. That does not mean the coach is going to take you back. They would rather take the guy who they can work with, who's not going to degrade the room and degrade the bench. They're going to take, and, and that could be the only difference maker between the two of you. And that'll be why that guy gets that job over you. So my message to the parents on this one would be talk to your kids about what can make them special and not just telling them all the time that they are special or that they deserve it because they did the one or two extra little things during the summer or, or, you know, they read that extra hockey book. So that's all they needed to do. And that's the difference maker. 
you have to make yourself special in comparison to the others. And that would be my message as far as that, uh, especially with tryouts or, or expectations for, for what your son or daughter should be doing, especially in the beginning of the season. Um, what is going to make that coach gravitate towards your player beyond that player's raw skill? What are the things that your player does? You know, over the course of the last few days after, after these few games that we played in Boston, uh, I've had a few of my guys reach out and ask for, for video sessions, personal one-on-one meetings, you know, can we, can we talk about this clip? Can we talk about this? I want to know what I did wrong here. And, you know, I like all these guys, but there are other ones that have not done that. Now, does that mean I'm going to start moving the lineup up and down and change everything just based off that? No. But what I'm trying to say is those are small differences between the personalities of the players. And I respect the hell out of a guy who knows that he didn't have a a few great games who reaches out to me and says, Hey, coach Jeff, like, I'd like to talk about, you know, the second half of game two this week. You know, I felt like I really took a nosedive off of my performance in the first half of the game. Can we watch the video and talk about it? Or can I send you a few clips and we talk about what you think I'm doing wrong here and how I can do better? I respect the hell out of that rather than the guy who's just like, yeah, I didn't play so well, but I'll just do better next time. And I think that that's a great thing, especially at these youth levels for these guys that want to be making jumps, you know, whether you're a first year U18 or U16 or a veteran, or you want to make the jump to juniors or you're juniors and you want to make the jump to college, so on and so forth. It's all the little things. How can I get better? What can I do? And asking questions and being open to criticism. And something I'd like to talk about today is being able to move forward. Um, I'll take that as a segue to this. It's you can, you can hold yourself accountable, but if you hold yourself accountable to a degree that is detrimental to the rest of your training session or the rest of your game, and you've now taken yourself out mentally from the rest of the day, that's not, that's not going to be conducive to the overall goal of your, of your development. You need to hold yourself accountable and, in, in my perspective, holding yourself accountable is you recognize the mistake and you do whatever you can to not make that same mistake again. But you don't have to sit there on the bench for the rest of the game beating yourself up because you made a bad play. Whether that bad play resulted in a goal or not, learn from it, move forward. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of guys who, for you know, a lack of a better term, are very small-minded as far as being able to move forward. So what would your advice to be, be to some of these players on, on how to you know, move forward? Because especially at the NHL level, uh, I've noticed when skating some of these guys that they make a mistake in a training session and they pretty much laugh it off and they do whatever they can to not make that same mistake again. But a 16U guy makes a mistake and it destroys the rest of his training session. So was that something that you had to deal with when you were playing and growing up? Were you, were you extremely hard on yourself? Jeff, 16 years old, that was a long time ago, but, uh, <laughs> but I can tell you from my experience playing in the national hockey league, where really the job was simple for me. I was a player who needs to put up points. So I would always, uh, find a way to maximize the opportunity to get points within playing with the structure and doing exactly what the coach wants. So it comes to uh, not only studying the opponents or the goalies, it really comes to studying your teammates. 
and what kind of what kind of uh, you know rules they're taking when they want the puck or do they play give and go or do you want to hold on to it or do they you know really find you from the corner or this guy maybe do one more move or stuff like that so definitely you can find a lot of ways to kind of maximize your opportunities so you don't get down as much but you know i learned very quickly where at that level if you get down and you have a bad game that you get sent down to the minors or you're done with hockey so at that level you have no time you basically you learn very quickly where the play is over the ship is over i come on the bench i'll take a sip it's right behind me next one next one goes the, the doesn't go well you come on the bench take a sip if you get a chance next one and you keep going and you keep going and i think the best thing uh, you know i think it's like a phrase that everybody uses but it's so true you know once you're on a high your head is leveled right here once you're on the low your head is still right here and you have certain mindset you have something goal set in your mind and you, and you just go for it and really that's uh that's something if the players can take from this session it is uh so important it is so important and i can see it on so many players i can see it on my son you know at this age it's very hard for these kids to deal with it they love to be on a high but you know they're like shockingly that all of a sudden the next game after three first five shifts they're on so much low again and they go high score a couple of goals and they go low again and I, th I think sooner the coach is going to explain to them or actually the parents. I think this is the great how the parents can help their kids at home. And, uh, you know, soon as those kids going to learn to be at the same level with your head as possible, even if you high or low or good or bad, I think that's going to be, uh, and it could be the difference maker of making the team next year. It could be the difference maker of being drafted or get a scholarship to the, to the D1 hockey. And uh, this is something where definitely if you can see as a parent or as a coach that uh, the players have a lot of highs and lows definitely try to talk about it try to kind of help him out and try to teach him just to stay leveled as much as possible i didn't really answer a question though how i was when i was 16 because uh you know the hockey was way different than i knew i was good at that time you know i was pissed when I didn't score two or three goals in Czech Republic each game. So, uh, you know, I think comes to the parent again, my father, my father very kept me straight headed and he was, he, he wasn't really hard on me or that he would like be tough on me, but he set the rules at home and there was no way to cross in them. And uh, just a quick story, I think. Yeah, when I was like 15, 16 years old, uh, I think it was 15, I played junior hockey in Czech Republic. And uh, I had a one breakaway, second shift, didn't score the goal. Second breakaway, fifth shift, didn't score the goal. Third breakaway, end of first period, and didn't score a goal. And while I'm taking the turn away from the goalie, I took my stick and I just helicopter it into the stands. <laughs> I come cocky to the bench because at that time I really had some good numbers. So I come to the bench and I'm just kind of sit there and all of a sudden I see this bare hand. It's like a bear. Seriously, my dad had a hair like a hand like a bear. Just grab my cage. He literally, I'm not kidding you, he took me out of the bench like this. And in my my feet were flopping in the air like this. And he grabbed me like this all the way to the locker room. He sat me down. He said, You undress now and we going home.
And if you ever do that again, you never play hockey again. I taught you that you're going to respect your teammates, your opponent, and the game of hockey. This is not respecting the game of hockey or your teammate or your opponents. And, you know, it was a very good life lesson right there. Uh, where definitely, uh, you know, people don't realize that, uh, you know, how we grew up in Czech Republic. Uh, my dad for that stake has to, had to work for six months, his extra job. And uh, we grew up very, very poor. So definitely great life lesson. And I'm very happy he did that. Yeah, I'm sure you never did that again. Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. But, uh, yeah, there is actually uh, one more thing uh, I would like to, uh, before the season start, I think this is a big, big uh, thing where about three or four parents who they have oh nines right now. Uh, and it's a first year of hitting for them. And I think this is the topic where the transition from uh, you going from PV to Bantams and first year of hitting, everybody's so excited. And uh, like we talked on the episode one, where the uh, size difference is so big, is so big where some of the kids can really do some damage to the smaller kids. And, uh, you know, maybe if you can talk about what's your coaching experience with that, and I can really jump in, say what is mine. I, uh, if I can just start it off, uh, I am the coach where, uh, yeah, it comes down to the coaches, uh, most importantly, where, you know, for me as a coach, uh, I always tell my players to go hit to get position of the puck so you can continue in the play. And I want to go offense with that puck right away. If you go for that huge hit, your shoulders flying everywhere, you have your feet too. I don't need you like that. I, right. I need you to continue have your speed get a hit, take the puck away from the opponent and turn it back on offense. Because at that point, their defense is not set and that's where you're going to get your most of your chances. So, you know, there is a, a lot of different ways and the parents are going to see that every team uh, is coached differently and plays a little di different style. I uh, can really tell you that from my experience, uh, first two months, everybody's going to try to kill everybody. They're going to yep. be hitting left and right. And it's really going to, after a couple of months, it really is going to slow down and the plot and the uh, hockey is going to be played. And um, uh, really, I can talk for myself or for the people I know in the big hockey. And uh, if they looking at the player and how hard they hit, I think it's very on the back of the line before all of the stuff you have to do first. And, uh, you know, for some of the parents coming into the season, maybe have a smaller player, don't be afraid. You know, he may get hit two or three times, big hits, but uh, nothing's going to really happen. He's going to get used to it. The big hitting really, really going to slow it down because when you progress into the Bantams, again, the hockey will take over. And with, especially with the rules now being called, you're really not allowed to go for those big hits. And uh, definitely, if you have a skilled player, you know, do not... Uh, try to scare him about this or oh my god we're gonna play tomorrow night we're gonna play these guys they have three big guys i think the more you get into the head it works for the kids just go out there and play keep your head up keep making your plays do not hesitate do not be afraid play the same way you will get hit you're gonna hit somebody but uh definitely uh the transition into the hitting into the hockey is not as dramatic as uh, people would think, even though I've seen quite a bit of players where 
when it got to hitting, they basically uh, didn't want to play the way the style they used to play. Mm-hmm. And they had a problems with that. Some of them, they turned around, but some of them had to go to level down. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the main characteristics of this game, in my opinion, is courage. And if you lack courage, you are going to fail in a lot of aspects of the game. If you are afraid to take a hit, you will not work to win puck battles, you know, puck races. If you're the type of guy that chips the puck in and then you wait for the defender to pick it up every single time and give away possession, uh, just so that you're not the one being hit, you are not going to last in this game. You have to be, uh, in a sense, fearless. Um, And in my opinion, you know, experience, uh, the parents are more afraid than the players are. And a lot of the little guys are the guys that are throwing monstrous hits on these huge players because some of these big guys don't know how to use their size, especially at the Bantam level. They don't really know how to use that size yet. But as far as teaching hitting, I think the best way to combat a hit is to hit yourself. And by initiating contact, even on the offensive side of the puck, even with puck possession, uh, initiating that reverse hit uh, is becoming more and more prevalent uh, in the game today. Uh, You see guys like Moritz Seider who are just crushing guys while he has puck possession. Uh, I think it's a fantastic thing that these players should be uh, aware of, that uh, there's no rule against throwing a hit to, you know, while you have possession of the puck. You don't just have to cower. Uh, Other things that I think that are important for players to know is where you should be in relativity to the boards when you're carrying a puck, right? Because if you get hit hard and you're mere inches or whatever from the boards, uh, those boards are going to have give and and you're not going to be absolutely crushed. Um, But if you are five, six feet away from the boards and you get taken off your feet, now you're putting yourself in a dangerous position. Now that's where you start seeing those heads cracking into the boards and those necks start getting hurt. And, you know, I'm not saying this to scare anybody, but I'm just telling you how, how physics works. You know, if you get knocked off your feet and, and your feet from the boards, you know, how you fall into those boards could be a a dangerous situation. Um, But you, you need to have that level of, of courage. I think that's the foundation of everything, especially when you're going into these, these hitting situations. But uh, as far as players changing up their game, when they go from the non-hitting to the hitting game, a hundred percent, a hundred percent, the guys that play with their head down the whole time. And the guys think that that think that they can just puck handle through everybody and go coast to coast every single shift, because maybe they were bigger or a little bit better. Now we have bodies thrown around that style of play is not going to work. And you try to go through a defender's feet and they step up on you one or two times and they put you on your ass. You're going to learn real quick that that's not the move that you want to continue doing when, you know, some smaller D man in, in peewees couldn't, you know, hold you back and you just put it through his legs and you kind of out muscled them and went around them. Well, now that kid can throw his shoulder into your sternum and you're on your ass. So uh, I think a level of problem solving comes into the situation as well, but yeah, be, being being taught by you know the kind of hard nosed guys that that taught us on Long Island growing up was you know a big level of it was courage, and you cannot be afraid to get hit or you are going to fade away in this game. No, hundred uh, percent. Look at me. I was uh, 
you know, six feet, uh, you know, 190 playing the National Hockey League. And, uh, you know, just like you said, it's, uh, I, I was a player where I, I knew that, you know, when I go into that corner and I knew that big D is coming. So I knew I have to make that play knowing that I'm going to get crushed. And uh, if I wouldn't go there and make that play, I would not go on the ice the next time. So you kind of learned, uh, I think the most, and just like you said, the, the one of the biggest skill set is how to take the hit, how, how to protect yourself. And uh, when you learn how to do that, you know, how to, you know, when the guy is coming from, you know, you, you still have that little time to make that play, then protect yourself, bounce off and take the hit, bounce off and get back into the play. I think that's one of the biggest skills that you're going to have to do. And, uh, you know, I wasn't going out there to go and kill people and, you know, really hit people. You know, no one ever asked me with my size to go out there, but I had to prove the coaches that I can hit too. So, you know, if I had two, three, four hits a night, you know, even though I didn't knock the player off of on his butt or, you know, I didn't like, you know, fans didn't go crazy. Wow, wow what I hit. But, you know, you kind of have to show the coaches that, you know, you really are able to play and, uh, you know, with the contact. And, uh, you know, you don't have to go for a big hits, but, you know, just go for those bumps, you know, go for that hit, try to get the puck away from him. You know, I think the, uh, you know, worst thing you can do is when you go for the battle for one-on-one -on -one to kind of slow down and let the other player to go first. I think the coaches definitely don't like it. And, uh, you know, if they uh, know that you can get in there first and keep the position of the puck in the offensive zone or on the power play and you don't do that, definitely that's not a good sign. So, oh, you know, there's not. a lot of stuff. Yeah, there is a lot of stuff, uh, you know, when it comes to hitting. But, uh, you know, you, just to sum it up for me here, of when I was playing, you don't have to make a big hit to play contact. And uh, you're going to get actually more cheers from the boys on the bench when they know you went to, into that corner, you put your body on the line, you knew you're going to get hit, but you still made that play. Yep. And uh, if you can be that player, coach is going to respect you, the player is going to respect you, and the teammates will want to play with you. And you can really extend your career just by that, being that guy by a lot of the organizations and a lot of the coaches. Yeah, and just, you know, talking about fearlessness and, you know, putting yourself in harm's way to make a play. Uh, we talked about this the other day uh, when I was talking about that hideous visor uh, that you wore back in the day, um, you were the one that made the pass to Paul Correa for the on the floor and on the board. How, you know, you notice that he cuts across and he makes that play. And how does a guy like that, especially a guy like you who has been hit to the point of being hurt, how do you bounce back from that to continue being the same player, you know, pre-hit? Because there are a lot of players that will take a hit like that and say, I'm never doing that again. I'm never going to put myself in a position like that again. And when you start to play scared is when you are actually more likely to get hurt. So maybe give me and the listeners some, some insight about how guys like, like Paul and yourself bounced back from, you know, big crushing hits. Yeah. Paulie got, Paulie got crushed by Scotty Stevens. There was a cycle finals and, uh, 
and he was in the locker room for about five to seven minutes. He came back. Uh, obviously, now these days they were never letting him back on the ice. But back, uh, at that time, they let him back on the ice. The next shift, I remember, I got passed from the OT, and I just kind of was in the neutral zone. I got stuck in my feet. I kind of slowed down and I just kind of pass it to the left side to Paulie with the speed. He comes in and slap her top cheese. And uh, there was, I th- that's one of the biggest hockey moments I yeah. was actually around. It was something unbelievable. The building went absolutely nuts. Uh, it was uh, one of the hockey moments where probably they're going to continue putting those on the Instagrams, uh, you know, next 50 years. Sure. Uh, but, you know, to answer a question uh, for me, I never really thought about it. For me, it was just a bump in a row where I got crushed by, by Hatcher. And, uh, you know, if there would be the game the next day, I would play and really never really crossed my mind that, yeah, he's going to crush me again because I had really so much passion for the game. I really want to prove uh, everybody that I can play and, you know, stay in the league and fighting maybe for the new contract or fighting for, you know, instead of playing 70 minutes a night to play 20 two minutes a night and so i was all in with hockey uh i had really for me wasn't if or buts or this and that for me was if they're gonna let me go on the ice i am gonna go and play because i love this game i want to play this game i want to be in national <laughs> hockey league and for me it was nothing else you know that time we had no social medias we had actually i think the cell phones maybe just started maybe i didn't even have a cell phone and for me all i had uh, you know, really was just hockey. So, uh, uh, you know, I can see it and I read it quite a bit that some of the guys, they couldn't really never recover from those concussions and uh, never really kind of had that game back because they were maybe a little bit, uh, you know, watching the play, didn't put them in this, in that positions to get hit, hit again. But for me personally, I never had this problem. I remember after this big hit in 2001, I got crushed about, you know, probably seven more times in my career. And, uh, you know, actually I got crushed uh, by my teammate when we collide. And that was uh, probably the biggest hit I ever got when, you know, me and him, we had no idea that we coming in across each other. And I was looking that way, he was looking that way. And, you know, we, we got absolutely crushed. I remember that was in Montreal. And, uh, and I remember my nose was, uh, actually by my like jaw down here, you know, when I, <laughs> when I got up, but, uh, you know, for me, never was the problem. I knew I, I was going to get hit. I had no problem with that. I, I got rewarded so much more by the game and scoring goals, this and that, that one of these hits once in a while didn't stop me. Yeah. I think, I think that, uh, players can take a lot from that and that mindset. Uh, I was very, very much the same way. I had a lot of concussions playing. Um, you know, I got a lot when I was even, when I was younger and they just kept, uh, they just kept coming as they say. Uh, but it never phased me. It never stopped me. Um, I remember it was, uh, like age out night. And it was the first time that my parents that season had flown up to Canada to come watch me play. And I was playing a particularly strong game. And with about 30 something seconds left, some guy who came off the bench just absolutely trucked me. Uh, he separated my shoulder. Uh, I was ringing. I remember getting up and, and skating off and uh, it took me quite some time to, you know, get undressed and get out of there. 
uh, had to go to the hospital for my shoulder. But uh, when I was back during playoffs, I came back just like my old self, like I hadn't even missed a beat. It just it just wasn't something that uh, that stuck in my mind for too long. I think maybe that was a lot of the indoctrination and the training and the, you know, just the way, maybe a little bit the way I was, uh, you know, call it crazy, call it stupid, call it uh, whatever you want. But um, it's just the way I was as a player. But I, I see that and I can understand. I do understand the mindset of I don't ever want that to happen to me again. It's not who I am personally. Clearly, it's not who you are personally. But I think to lack the understanding of somebody who gets absolutely murdered to say that I don't ever want that to happen to me again, I think that's just ignorant. Whether we agree with it or not, I think that you have to understand it. But I wanted to uh, digress to something because we were talking about it in the beginning about, you know, you're going to Boston this weekend. I'm going to Boston this weekend. Tournaments all year long. And... I wanted to talk about parental expectations uh, for tournaments, the hotel situation, state of play. Um, th that's a big conversation nowadays, state of play. I hear it all the time, the grumblings about state of play from parents, from organizations, um, and you know the financial burden that, that these tournaments can take on, on families and how that can be a big deterrent uh, to them playing travel hockey as opposed to a really good player who just plays rec their whole life because the family says, I can't afford to be spending this money, you know, to go away every month. Even some teams go away twice a month. You know, some months they go away twice a month. So do you have any ideas or, you know, have you worked out anything with any anybody before on ways to save money for these parents to save any money with, with, with these tournaments? Um, especially when it comes to state of play, that's where it gets really difficult because it's not like some of these hotels jack the price up 10, 15 bucks. I mean, sometimes they're jacking it up to almost what could be a double rate. And uh, it's funny, I've actually spoken to some legal professionals who are convinced that uh, state of play is actually illegal um, under the law called tying. Uh, if you Google tying law, if you look up the article from Cornell University Law School, it's a very compelling, uh, very compelling argument that state of play is actually illegal. But uh, what, what say you about how uh, parents can expect, you know, expect this to hit the pocketbook and, uh, and how maybe they can uh, make some plays and some changes to help relieve some of that pressure on themselves? Wow, this is, uh, you, got, you got me on guard with this question. Uh, you know, the first part of the question was that some of the uh, really good players there you know, the financially cannot play the triple A hockey, the travel hockey, because it really gets crazy expensive. I can tell you there are some organizations where uh, definitely if you, and it really comes down to, again, what we talked to before, if you're a really good player, you are good in the locker room, the parents don't give trouble to coaches, the organization can really count on you. I think really there are some organizations where you, you know, where you can, you know, prove that you have these financial troubles, they will, they're going to give you a break. Uh, 
and there is some really good people in hockey you know sometimes we just try to find what's wrong with hockey we try to find you know what's really bad and this and that and i can tell you there's actually a lot of good people in youth hockey too yeah, there I've are. Seen it before i've seen it before i've seen uh i've seen these organizations and the owners to really help the players help the families really sometimes they even let the kids play for free and uh I really, my head goes down to these people because they really help me now big time. You know, uh, for me personally, uh, some I just try to help where, you know, I actually, you know, I don't take money for my coaching. So trying to help out that way, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, these uh, owners and organizations, uh, they might have even one or two players on each team who are trying to help out maybe with the half tuition, maybe with no tuition. And, uh, but yet again, we come back to it, like you said, Jeff, before, you know, if you are the cancer in the locker room, if you are a bad parent, if you are, if you are a really good player, but no one can really play with your kid, they cannot stay in your kid in the locker room. They're not gonna give you that. You know, so it always comes down to, you know, to be that respectful guy, great kid, good hockey player, and uh, when people see that that you can bring in all the good values and you don't have money for it. You know, in a lot of the cases, I've seen people to help people. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, the game is becoming more and more expensive by the day. Uh, we've spoken about this before. Um, to give some insight to some parents, I think that there's always ways uh, to get around these things, whether it's <clears throat> splitting a room. Uh, or, Hey, if you drive the kids, I'll pay for the room. You know, you pay for the gas and the food and I'll pay for the room or whatever it may be. Um, there's always ways to, to help families who, uh, don't need to take out a loan for their kid to play, you know, travel hockey. If you have it within your means to be able to do some of these things, but you want to start, you know, pinching notes, pinching some pennies here and there. Uh, I think it's a good idea for parents to come together as a group and start and start finding ways on how they can uh, save money on these endeavors, whether it's finding group rates through a travel agent, um, you know, maybe making hotel blocks instead of doing stay to play. If you can find out where these hotels are earlier, as long as you're staying there, I don't believe you're breaking any rules. Uh, I don't think, you know, I just think that at some point something's got to give for a lot of people, something's got to give, uh, they look at this and they just go, this is an unrealistic expense for me. So for, for parents to see this through a different lens, uh, I think that you can get creative and still make this work for everybody. So that, you know, if you have a talented enough player that plays travel hockey, that they can, they can still go and experience these things. Um, but at the same time, I do believe that this does fall on, uh, you know, whether it's tournament directors, tournament groups, uh, it falls on them to, to have a certain level of ethics as well. Yes. Yes. It's, uh, definitely this is, a uh, it gets expensive. It definitely gets expensive. Uh, I think we spoke about it at the episode one, a little bit too, how to try to maybe a little bit, we can talk about it in the next one or down the road, how to try to save some money during the summer training. Uh, don't go as many spring and summer tournaments. You know, no one's watching there. Trust me, no one's there. 
uh, it's if you have an if you play squirt and PV hockey and you know you've been told you have to go to Toronto three times a summer to be seen you don't have to trust me I think you'll spend the money on the training and you can actually save a lot of money and do way better than you know spending a lot of money on traveling and tournaments and uh, spring uh, you know games and summer games where you know if you put together, I know some of the kids, if you put ever together the normal season and the spring and summer hockey, they come up sometimes to 110 games, which is absolutely ridiculous. You know, you don't have to. The spring and summer, it's about training. It's about your skills. It's about the skating. It's about play other sports. It's about actually finishing your school, doing the right in school. So you have a good grade on end of the school year. You know, it's about, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff where you have to figure out what kind of trainer to get and how do the uh, off ice and, and all that stuff where if you spend another, let's say, spring and summer, 10 10 tournaments that's 10 times tickets to get there flying tickets or bus or whatever you or the gas for a car you have to spend for the hotel you have to pay the fee to get into the tournament and really you know doesn't give you as much as if you do the proper training throughout the spring and summer so we can really get on it maybe spend the whole episode about how to really spend the spring and summer hockey not hockey spring and summer training uh and uh, it can really kind of maybe you can save about four to five six thousand dollars from spring and summer where you can spend it properly in the winter and uh, definitely maybe uh, some parents doesn't really know you know maybe they hear oh my god this other guy he scored 30 goals last year but he went to all the spring and summer tournaments we have to do that too but no one really explained to them what they really should be doing and that's how they really they get kind of sucked in two days where all this other guy is doing is too oh my god maybe we are missing something so you know if the parents really just spend a little bit of money a little bit of money on getting the knowledge what to do in the spring and summer they will save you a lot of money yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, diverting money and funds from unneeded and unnecessary uh, events and uh, programming uh, to to be able to move that to where it is necessary uh, is an extremely uh, important knowledge point. Um, but one thing before we start wrapping up this episode, folks, the one thing I wanted to talk about is an expectation of parents for post game. And those moments in the in the car after after games are extremely crucial uh, in your players development and your players passion and love for this game. Your your kid, regardless of their skill level. Not every game is going to be a Sidney Crosby, Connor McDavid, you know, Alex Ovechkin level game. And if you expect that every single game is going to be at that level, you are going to be consistently disappointed. And I think that you seriously need to pump the brakes on those expectations. If you want to have, this is all opinion, this is all opinion, but if you want to have these conversations with your player post game, uh, I think that it should not be immediately after the game anyways. I think that there should be time for your player to decompress and, and take it all in and not feel that from the moment they get into that car, that if they have a bad game, that you are going to absolutely shred them. There are definitely certain situations where where that is impossible to ask of parents. I understand this. But 
you are going to see that at some point you're not going to have those moments ever again. And, you know, Peter and I, we've talked about this before, uh, that this is a lesson that, uh, you know, many parents need to hear that you only have a certain amount of time to have these car ride homes with your kids. So to ruin them by shredding them after a game, uh, if they have a bad one, um, you are going to make that a, an environment that they do not want to be in. You're going to make that a situation that they don't want to find themselves in. And how's the way for them to get themselves out of that situation? It's to not play. Simple as that. If, if a player doesn't want to get, you know, screamed at by their parent in the car after a game, they just won't play the game. So in my humble opinion, uh, and also a professional opinion, not as a psychologist, but as a coach, I think that the best thing that you could do is take a deep breath, maybe go get some food and let the player come out and talk about the game first and hear what they have to say. And then if you have things that you want to bring in, sure, nobody's telling you that you can't speak your mind or speak your opinion. Obviously you can, but I think that tone um, is an extremely important part of this. So, you know, how did you learn that lesson? Oh, it's, it, it was really hard for me not to talk to my son after the games. And I learned uh, lately uh, that, you know, the last couple of years that uh, it's so much better that we don't even talk about it because uh, I learned that he actually knows everything what I'm going to tell him, like he knows it. So there is absolutely no reason for me to tell him. And, you know, he can see that sometimes I'm very happy in my face. Sometimes I'm not happy. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, whatever. Uh, because uh, I know that he knows exactly how he played. I think he's a smart enough kid that he knows exactly what he needs to do out there. If he did it or not did, you know, how the effort was and stuff like that. So definitely uh sometimes maybe the following day or maybe at night he you know sometimes he comes up to me and we talk about it sometimes uh you know i just with very calm because soon as you start like putting pressure and it's just from the experience you know i had to go through that soon as you go with that tone with the, like the pressure putting pressure on it and start screaming and stuff like that you know they really don't want to go and they you get nothing out of the conversation you get absolutely nothing out of that conversation and uh we all different we all raise our kids very differently yeah um, telling anybody what to do um still try to figure out myself what is the best way to be a father to my son and i'm trying every day and uh i think uh you know just a couple of days ago we driving home from the ring we are flying home you know we both tired and we just have a conversation and we just talking about uh you know, we don't even talk about the practice. Like he knows exactly what he did good or bad and how the effort was during the practice. So we don't talk about it at all. And the whole way home, we're talking about how he's going to next year drive me from that ring home. And, you know, my hair is getting gray right now. Like I'm going to be behind <laughs> it. going to be driving on the New Jersey Turnpike, flying home. No next you know, and I'm going to be in the passenger seat, like try to like grab the steering wheel. But what am I going to do? So, you know, I think... Uh, 
I think you get to spend such a quality time with your son in that car. And I did waste a lot of time talking about hockey in there, but try to have that hockey talk to just a little bit and try to enjoy the time with your son, talk about something else, have some good conversations, enjoy that time. And uh, really nothing good is going to come out of screaming, yelling, uh, threading, kind of try to hurt his feelings. Nothing is good going to come out of it. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. I, uh, you know, in, in talking with many parents and players and people such as yourself and uh, other professionals, including sports psychologists, um, it seems to be the common consensus uh, about everything that you just said. But for everybody, that is it for episode three of Katsumoto's Conversations. Uh, thank you again, Peter, for a great talk. Uh, I hope that some of these parents can can take the information that we've given them today and that we will continue to give them and some of these players as well. Uh, we thank you for joining us once again. So, Peter, as always. It was a good conversation. Yes, it sure was. And uh, we cannot wait for you to join us again next week for Katsumoto's Conversations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ahojte všetci, sme kapela zo Slovenska, Cicobent a René Rendy a počúvate rozhovor Katsumoto s Petrom Sikorom a s Jeffom Loubmanom. Oh,